0: And newspapers are trying to express disapproval. Out comes the word revellers.
2: Stand away, stand away, you're cancelled.
0: I
3: think if we don't hang our heads in shame, we we've lost it as a society.
0: No, we're not lucky to be given crumbs off the banqueting table of freedom.
2: Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson Hello, and me, Liam Halligan. The number of COVID-19 patients in UK hospitals has plummeted since mid-January. Deaths from or with COVID are 95% down from their peak. The seven-day rolling average of fatalities is back where it was last June, just as pubs and restaurants... We're about to fully reopen. Yet we're still weeks and weeks from such freedoms, even though, unlike last summer of course, well over half of all UK adults are vaccinated, with close to 99% of those in the most vulnerable groups having been offered the jab. There's a lot of news around co-pilot Pearson, the alarming treatment of a religious studies teacher in Batley, whereas you wrote in your column this week, so far the only grown-up people in this situation are the kids. There's a new official report concluding the UK should be regarded as a model for other white majority countries when it comes to race relations. But we'll start with Covid, because as the weather improves and cases and fatalities remain low, the government's under increasing pressure to alter its roadmap, giving us a faster, more direct route out of lockdown.
0: Well, yes, co-pilot. We had a happy Monday this week, didn't we? There were um, golfers out at midnight with uh, glow-in-the-dark balls. That's how I tend to regard my co-pilot's speech, glow-in-the-dark balls. (laughs) Yeah, people were thrilled, weren't they? And they were all allowed to get back to activities outside, which as we know, Liam, should never have been banned in the first place. I mean, Scotland's kept its golf courses open. The, The idea that tennis was ever banned, the most socially distant sport you can possibly imagine. Anyway, I had mixed feelings. I was thrilled to see people going to parks and beaches. Something that always makes me laugh, Liam, is that um, that when the newspapers are trying to express disapproval, out comes the word "revelers." Have you seen that? <laughs> revelers on Brighton Beach. Never people having a picnic, it's always revellers, and it's a word that's never used in any other context. That
2: revelling family sitting there eating (laughs) eating actual ham and cheese sandwiches, drinking tea from a flask.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so anyway, the Great British public getting back in touch with its freedom and, and, you know, on a more serious point, first of all... I don't want think we should be feeling gratitude. The way it's presented on the TV news, aren't we lucky? You know, no, we're not lucky to be given crumbs off the banqueting table of freedom. It's our freedom. It's not for them to measure it out in little kind of teaspoons that, that they could give it back to us. But on a bigger point Liam I think this was actually look we don't crow do we we don't we don't crow well you do a bit but you know we don't. on planet normal I glow
2: don't, I don't crow according you, to you,
0: you <laughs> Glow, <laughs> you glow in the dark balls. Let's not go there. Well, uh, anyway, oh, you've, you've made me lots <laughs> of words there. But, but but I think I think it was with all due modesty. I think it was a tremendous week of vindication for Planet Normal because many of the things we've been banging on about for a whole almost a year now came to fruition. So the government said, um, hands, face, space, fresh air the admission that shutting people down for one year inside when you're safe outside. So, you know, that that, that was extraordinary. We saw the Telegraph reporting that seven in 10 positive COVID cases in school children are likely to be wrong. Tens of thousands of kids and families are having to isolate needlessly. Now, hasn't CoPilot been boring you with the need to bring back confirmatory PCR tests we've been saying this, that the infections are now so low across the country that these tests that kids are having to do twice a week in school are just totally unreliable. Most of them are wrong. And this is a more subtle point, Liam. If you recall back in January, Boris warned us that the new Kent variant of the coronavirus is not only more infectious, but maybe 30% more deadly. Now, you'll remember, Liam, how that really you know put the willies up people and and um but this week very quietly that claim was totally discredited wow. there's no truth in that at all but of course the damage was done that claim that the kent variant was 30% more deadly in january made headlines hiding the good news that R had fallen in most regions to below
2: 1. Oh, that's the rate of reinfection. And when it's below 1, it means the disease in general terms is constricting. When it's above 1, it means the disease is spreading.
0: That's exactly right. But... So those were splash headlines, you know, 30% more deadly, third more people are going to die. No, totally untrue. But of course, we're not going to have the BBC News tonight is not going to say, forget everything we told you about the Kent variant being deadly. It's actually just the same as all the others. But I think, you know, we keep talking about a sea change. This week, we didn't just see the British people rediscovering, getting a taste for freedom, having a lovely time. But we've also seen the media subtly adjusting now, coming over to the planet normal, dark. Because we had the Daily Mail with a huge coverage of why lockdown is a total disaster. (laughs) Economic cost of lockdown is £521 million a day. Furlough alone is costing us £139 million every day, Liam. So I'm seeing more coverage now of uh, not just the financial costs, but the psychological cost, the, the, the mental health costs, all music to Planet Normal's ears. We've been derided and attacked, haven't we? But I think this was Vindication Week.
2: It was Happy Monday earlier this week. The sun was shining. The, the small town where I live in North Essex, there was a real sort of palpable release of emotion. Yeah as people not came out on the streets and reveled with their <laughs> flasks of tea, but just being able to to see see the neighbours properly uh, and, and have a beer in the back garden and reconnect. And I think if the metrics continue to improve as much as they are, the government is going to have to, I think, yield to some degree on its roadmap, lest it be seen as as not just heartless, but irrational even.
0: Well, I'm not sure that they will yield, you know, because they seem to be so wedded to this roadmap. And as you say, it becomes increasingly illogical and farcical. And my nomination for numpty of the week in a hotly contested field, it has to be said.
2: (laughs) And I'm always a contender, right? I'm always up there. (laughs) I'm always always... always pushing for the podium.
0: (laughs) Yeah, narrowly snatched from you. This week. Sports minister Nigel Huddleston, oh, no, right, <laughs> who suggested to, to to people that they should respectfully call out friends and family for hugging. This this is this is our country, oh, Liam. God. Mr. Huddleston warned that the prime minister may not be able to end restrictions on June the twenty first if the public take liberties with Monday's easing of the curb on outdoor gatherings. What's a way of saying off you go without swearing? I mean, I was absolutely astounded by that, and to see the press briefing again with Chris Whitty doing his best to explain why indoor hugging and outdoor hugging were on a sort of were on we're on a par. I mean you know, these are farcical things. And what I'm seeing, and I, I suspect you are as well, is a campaign, not a campaign, not an organised campaign, but a very civil disobedience. I mean, we'll, we'll hear from some of the listeners later, but people are using their own common sense, Liam, they're seeing their children, they're visiting friends, they're having meals, they're absolutely, you know, not, not, uh, sticking with the roadmap. I reckon the country is about a month ahead of the government in its attitudes. Can we just have a quick bit? Last week, we didn't have enough time for a bit of George, who, which is a highlight for lots of listeners. Can you just tell us quickly who George is, Liam?
2: Indeed. So George, as we say, whenever we refer to George's data senior source within NHS England, he or she, we don't reveal uh, George's identity, has full access to the internal data. We don't disclose who he or she is because of their job security, but we're confident of the authenticity of George's statistics, uh, and that's why you report them, Allison, but we can't independently verify them uh, because George gives them to us, by definition, before they're published.
0: Well I'm delighted to report Liam that George received his or her Planet Normal mug this week.
2: Oh fantastic.
0: And was <laughs> was absolutely thrilled and I think no one could be more deserving of um of that hotly contested item. But George says this week that there are still slightly above 3000 COVID inpatients in in English hospitals, 3115 to be precise. Now Liam that's 3,115 beds occupied by COVID patients out of 102,527 available beds.
2: And am I right in saying, Alison, at the January peak, there are about 40,000 COVID patients in NHS beds? So we're well down. Way down. down.
0: We've got 3% occupancy now in hospitals. It's tiny. Uh, George says the rate of decline has decreased marginally from 25% every week to 23%, but we're now at the same level of bed occupancy as late June last year. You, you made that comparison earlier, Liam. And that was just before the pubs opened. And we didn't even have a vaccine then. In the last seven days, an average of 200 patients per day were diagnosed with COVID and 100 admitted with COVID. You'll remember that distinction we draw between those who come into hospital with COVID and those who unfortunately catch COVID while they're in the hospital. Although George says even those nosocomial infections are reducing down from 20% of the inpatient diagnoses to 15%. And this is really interesting, Liam. George says, I think it's unlikely hospitals will be totally clear of COVID by Easter. The lowest number of inpatients we got down to nationally over last summer was still about 450. But with the decline in numbers tumbling, many hospitals should only have a handful of COVID patients. And he, he or she, George says, All other wider indicators point to the decline in viral infections continuing. So I simply don't see where this third wave, which Boris mentions, is supposed to come from. Hospitals, this is very interesting going forward, in general, are still operating only around 85% capacity. That's very low, Liam. And George says it's the ambition that the NHS has had for some time to operate at that level. But we can only do that if we're only treating the most urgent and high priority cases, which is what's happening. All the waiting lists are now being prioritised according to clinical risk. The high priority and the longest waiters will go to the front of the queue. But George said it's very much not business as usual for the NHS and it won't be for some considerable time. And George's final words for us, Liam, are... We need to stop inflicting this economic and psychological damage on our country. So say all of us.
2: But look, we'll obviously come back to COVID, but I wanted to ask you about something else you penned in your column this week in The Telegraph, and obviously the links to both our columns each week are in the show notes to the episode. With, you wrote very powerfully about the religious studies teacher at Batley Grammar School in Yorkshire who showed uh, a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad to some of his pupils in a lesson that was explicitly about religious discrimination and how different religions uh, are discriminated against and, and derided and lampooned. And of course, it's led to an absolute escalation of tensions locally, hasn't it?
0: Yes. I mean, it, it's a terrible case both for this poor teacher, as far as we can tell, a very popular religious studies teacher at Batley Grammar School, um, who is now in fear of his life, in hiding with his wife and four children. This is in um, the UK, Liam, in 2021. That, there's that awful aspect. And then there's the absolutely cowardly and useless response of the authorities, not saying of teacher unions, which are so vocal, haven't they been about teachers not being allowed to be at risk by going back to the classroom with children who who can barely pass on COVID. So they've been extremely militant about that, but not a peep. They said that they were being supportive of the process that was going on with this teacher, but no word of don't you dare react to teachers like that to those people who are making veiled threats against him. And we saw the rather marvellously named headmaster Gary Kibble. Sounds like a cat food acts like a pussy, but oh, Mister Kibble, apologise.
2: I'm so glad you said that, and not me.
0: <laughs> I, I always say that, just hoping you're going to make a Mrs. Slocum reference. We know
2: you with your. I free <laughs> We were talking about Dad's Army the other day. If we are going back to "Are you being served?" and mm. many Planet Normal listeners will remember "Are you being served?" Yes. I think I've always had you down as a, as a young <laughs> Wendy Richards rather than a mature Molly Sugden. <laughs> at least for the purposes of the podcast I have anyway Uh, put my tin hat on but I would say that of all the male characters I'm definitely not uh, Mr Humphreys John Inman I I don't think I've quite got the breeding and demeanour to be Captain Peacock the rather (laughs) ramrod straight former military floor manager. How about the young
0: Mr Grace? I'm probably Mr Mr. Lucas. I, I am
2: Mr Lucas the sort of sharp brown suited geezer who's always trying to get Wendy Richards to go out for a drink. Yes, you
0: are. You are. (laughs) Definitely are.
2: So on that note, Batley Grammar School.
0: (laughs) Yeah, just coming back to um, Mr Kibble, the headmaster, who really without any delay, went into full on appeasement mode of the protesters who were standing outside the school. We can we can debate, Liam, how many of those protesters were parents and how many were, they were said to be on Islamist networks, you know, calls for people to turn up and protest. So some of them, I think, were just seeking to leverage this situation to create further community tension. It does seem now that It's possible that two further teachers have been suspended. Were they present in the classroom when that lesson was being given? We've learned from students who've set up a petition, a brilliant petition to have their teacher reinstated, which has now got over 70,000 signatures, that he had warned, the teacher had warned the students before showing them the images and he had the intent to educate us, the students said. They don't think he deserves these Dreadful repercussions, and nor do they believe he was racist in in any way. Now, something, Liam. Many years ago, I taught in inner city London, and I did, you know, teach uh, children from all these different backgrounds, and 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 my observation would be. That the kids want to belong. I mean, one of the prime, strongest impulse in a teenager is to be part of the pack, isn't it? Is to, is to have the same phone and the same trainers and to belong. These kids, they want to be British. Most of them want to be British. It is the older generation. It's these imams in their mosques. Some. Some, some imams. Because many enough. do
2: great work, as, as as we both agree. Many have done great work yes. spreading the the faith, if you like, on vaccination, encouraging their communities to be vaccinated. But it, it is some.
0: It is some. And as far as I know, there are certain type of, of imams or preachers who come from, say, rural parts of uh, Pakistan or Bangladesh who are not tremendously happy with the modern Western world. And so these kids are caught, they're in a tug of war match really between this very, very traditional patriarchal society and the modern country that they inhabit. And my heart goes out to them because it's very, very difficult to feel caught between two worlds. So how marvellous, Liam, that this terrific teacher was teaching a lesson on integration, all right? He was trying to address this really sore spot, which is, you know, it's a real problem in our country with um, people from certain groups feeling that they don't belong and so on and and this is the difficulty trying to um trying to appease trying to tamp it down the cops didn't even arrest any of the protesters outside the school they dragged off women from the Sarah Everard protest didn't they because they were breaching covid rules but i didn't see a single protester outside batley grammar school being arrested when they were clearly breaching uh COVID rules. So I personally feel offended, Liam, that a badly born person, this terrific teacher, is having his life and career ruined and is in hiding with his four young children for following the school's curriculum as far as we know and doing his best to teach his children, his the students in his care about integration and how you can be a religious person. And you can be a happy British citizen.
2: What I'd really like to see, and it's tough during lockdown, of course, but journalists do have certain freedoms to carry on with their work. I'd like to see some really, really good local reporting of what's happening on the ground. I'd like to see interviews with local religious leaders. I'd like to see interviews with local more moderate Muslim uh, people in Batley and the surrounding area? To what extent do those religious leaders who catch all the headlines speak for the majority of the community? I'd like to see the government saying more about this. Obviously, it's a very, very sensitive area. I think we need to hear from all sides on this, but we can't just allow local thugs, frankly, to take the law into their own hands and create a local law that isn't in line with the law of this nation, backed up by our democracy. And it's interesting that as we've had this situation in Batley, uh, a a government-commissioned report has come out into race relations across the UK. Uh, And again, we've talked about this many times. Remember our fabulous interview with Trevor Phillips, with Sean Bailey as well, the Tory candidate for London mayor. We're not saying there's no racism in the UK. Of course there is. But you have to get it in to some kind of perspective. And this new government report uh, is very interesting. It's by the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. It's 250 pages. I've been wading my way through it earlier this morning. Not everyone will agree with it. But it does say after a lot of detailed research that Britain should, quote, should be regarded as a model for other white majority countries. And that's very much in line with findings from the 2020 Migrant uh, Integration Policy Index. The UK outperforms um, diverse white majority European countries such as France, Germany and the Netherlands when it comes to anti-discrimination protections on the grounds of race and ethnicity and religion, by the way. And no one is saying that the UK is perfect. But as I've said in the past, as somebody from an immigrant family myself, whose father, grandfather, relatives suffered real bad racism in this country in the 30s, 40s, 50s, into the 60s, that doesn't mean that individual people in the country now aren't suffering from incidences of racism. They absolutely are. But we've come so far, and unless we recognise progress the massive progress that we've made over the last few decades how can we build on that progress
0: if you go on telling our society our young people you're living in this dreadful racist society when they're not ultimately are that you know they're just going to feel very very negative about their country and i think we should be talking up the fact that our country is pretty damn good
1: It begins as a love story. Couples who meet as young activists bonded in a fight against injustice. We seem to have similar outlooks in life. He often made me feel very special. It felt like we were in
0: love. I remember it being quite magical. As far as I was concerned, we had a future together. I fully did envisage my future with him. But
1: then he starts acting strangely. Suddenly there were secrets and there were inconsistencies and there were things that didn't make sense. Then one day he leaves.
3: I came home from work and I realised immediately that he'd gone.
1: Vanishes without a trace. And the reason why these men disappear is so disturbing it's led to a formal apology from the state. I never for a moment thought that it would be what it actually turned out to be. This is Bed of Lies, the true story of one of the biggest scandals in recent British history and the latest podcast from The Telegraph.
3: Talk about the Stasi in East Germany. That's not how we understand our society.
1: A tale that travels from the safety of a loving bedroom to the very heart of the law. Search for Bed of Lies wherever you're listening to this.
2: So, Alison, on to our guest slot. Who's riding in our rocket of right thinking this week?
0: Well, Liam, we've talked a lot, haven't we, about how children have experienced this lockdown and we've we've heard from students. And I thought it'd be really interesting to, to talk to an actual expert in the field. So I asked Ellen Townsend if she would come and talk to, to us on Planet Normal. Ellen is the Professor of Psychology at the University of Nottingham. She specialises in self-harm and suicide prevention with a, with a focus on young people. She was a member of the Expert Review Group for the National Coordinating Centre for Mental Health Clinical Competency. And her research has been, and terrific and its influenced guidance and policy for the Royal College of Psychiatrists and Public Health England and the Samaritans ellen has spoken out really boldly during the last few months as her concerns about what lockdown's doing to children have have deepened i put it to ellen that although covid is you know primarily a threat to the elderly i wondered if she felt that the pandemic had disproportionately affected children
3: I think that's the case. And unfortunately, the um, measures that we've put in place to try to curb the spread of coronavirus absolutely um, impact on young people and disadvantaged people in uh, in a much more acute way. Um, And we're seeing that in all sorts of ways in terms of loss of jobs, poverty, impacts on mental health, on education and so on. So you know, not just here, but globally, it's, it's, it's been a real disaster for young people.
0: The average age of death from COVID is about 82.4 years, which is in line with or even above average life expectancy in the UK. We seem to be the first generation in history not to put the life chances of our young first. What do you think that says about us as a society?
3: That is something that I have been pondering on for a year, and I cannot understand, even when we have the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child, which specifically states that we should put children first in everything that we do, that's Article 3, Um, and that disaster planners um, say that we should put children first, we should be putting them first now as as we recover, we should have put them first as we were going through the crisis. Um, and I always think about the analogy of a sink, sinking ship. I mean, who who do we save first? Do we do we go for the people who have a lot of future yet to live, or do we not? So it's something that's um, really confused me. And I think what it says about our society is that is that we're terrible at dealing with death and dying.
0: You know, obviously, when we see, you know very distressing footage from hospitals and so on, that that's a very tangible danger or pain or suffering, isn't it? But do you think that there's just a sort of, oh, they're young, you know, they'll bounce back? Do you think there's a bit of that kind of attitude?
3: I think there's a lot of that kind of attitude. And to some degree, it's understandable given that children are resilient and adaptable. However, that requires there being resources for them to negotiate to develop that resilience. It's not done in isolation or, you know, it, with, with nothing to support them. And, you know, um, we know, for example, that cause to domestic um, abuse, um, helplines increased by 43%. Now, that's all hidden away and it's not talked about because of the stigma and taboo associated with it. So we've, we've really, you know, not only have we spoiled the life chances of probably all of our young people, for the most vulnerable, we have, we've done the most harm. We've, we've literally neglected them and left them behind. The sad thing is that we've got some really interesting research from social psychology, which tells us that if we hold children in mind when we're making decisions, we make more pro-social decisions. We actually make you know, more helpful, more altruistic, kinder decisions, more compassionate decisions. And So with no one being around the table uh, at the Cabinet to champion children, it worries me that they just have not been taken into account. And I think the policy making completely reflects that.
0: You're a scientist, but we have been ruled, or, or there's an appearance of being ruled by SAGE, those kind of scientists who seemed to me as a mother uh, to lack these qualities of empathy. Do you think that some of these rules have just been absolutely mind-boggling?
3: They don't make an awful lot of sense and the one that I struggle to understand is the rule of six because, you know, it does seem again to be very discriminatory towards children. So six might be a nice number for a dinner party, but it okay. might be quite tricky to get two families with two or three children together. And uh, a lot of the rulemaking is arbitrary. It's not evidence based. Uh, it's not assessed in terms of the impact it's going to have. So, you know, children need certainty. They need they need routine, and they need consistency. It doesn't make any sense to me, uh, both as a mother and as a scientist.
0: Over the past year, we've had constant adverts and posters you know, designed to ensure compliance by using fear, I guess. And, you know, we've heard of children saying, I can kill my nana and grandad if I go near them. Uh, Do you think it's an issue that the government's messaging has emphasised death over recovery? And what do you think is the likely lasting impact on young minds of this kind of fear?
3: I think the ethics of inducing fear in that way are morally questionable. And you know, if I was to, in my research, induce any kind of emotion in the lab, for example, um, I would ethically expect to make sure that people left that lab feeling as good or better than they did when they came in. OK, and I'd be checking that. So I'd have an exit plan. What worries me about what has happened is there doesn't seem to be an ex plan to de-escalate the fear. And my strong feeling is right now um, for both children and adults, because I think adults are also terrified, is that we have to reduce the fear narrative now and to increase hope because, you know, children do need to be able to see a future. Young people, adolescents in particular, need to be able to see a future and and something that's predictable um, for them to look forward to, which at the moment with the constantly moving goalposts um, is is impossible.
0: Very sadly, we, we heard this week from a Planet Normal listener who said that her daughter's best friend had planned to take her own life and had left a note for her parents. Now, that poor girl was 12 years old, Ellen, 12 years old. Unfortunately, tragedy was averted, but I was incredibly shaken by that story and thinking about what that really young girl, a child, had gone through to get to that point. Now, Now, the data from around the world so far suggests that suicide rates haven't risen. Do you still think this is an area for concern? I absolutely
3: do. And I think one of the things you've drawn out there is the age of um, people who die by suicide. And of course, there are many reasons um, that that people um, want to take their own life. There's there's often a kind of culmination of a number of factors. It's never kind of a, a simple thing. Um, and it's never inevitable, you know, if if, it, you know, if, if things can be um, uh, put in place to mitigate, to support, then, you know, d- very different outcomes can be the case. But we saw uh, in July last year a report um, from the National Comorbidity, sorry, the National Mortality Child Database, which showed that in the first six, four, 56 Uh, days of the initial English lockdown, there was a small but non-significant increase in suicide in young people. Now, the numbers are going to be very small. So detecting a significant difference is going to be quite hard to do anyway. So people are worried about that. Now, the other thing to take into account is that early on in lockdown, we did have um, a sense of social cohesion. And we know that can be Protective for suicide rates, so they tend to go down in wars, for example, because people feel you know, we together, we're banding together, and so on. And certainly, there was you know, people were checking in on each other perhaps more than they would usually. Um, services and supports did respond very quickly. So we've got this interesting picture of, of you know, no increase, which which is a good thing, but can't be complacent about that. And and there are a number of reasons that I say that, number one, in some countries where there was an initial kind of decrease, we've subsequently seen increases. And we know that suicide rates increase uh, in times of financial crisis. So we saw after the 2008 crash, several years later, suicide rates around the globe increasing. Again, none of that's inevitable if we can put in mitigations to support people and to make sure they get the help they need before they get to crisis. None of that is inevitable. Then the final thing to say about the data that are coming out is that they're preliminary data. So obviously, coroners are very careful about verdicts. So the data that we're mostly seeing at the moment is what we call real-time monitoring data. So it's not a coroner's verdict. It's based on um, police records and so on, which are probable suicide. So we don't have a complete picture yet. So it's something to keep a really close eye on.
0: Ellen, we should say at this point that, of course, suicide is preventable and there are lots of sources of support for anyone struggling with suicidal thoughts. Samaritans are available to listen to anyone in distress day or night. Ellen, British children have amazingly missed more schools than almost any other kids in the world. What do you think the prolonged absence from education means for their generation? I
3: ultimately think what the evidence would say is reduce life expectancy I'm afraid it's that harsh when you look at the data things like poor mental health or better mental health better access to education um, lead to um, healthier longer lives so what we've essentially do have done is to you know we've 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 stacked a huge burden on our young people for me You know, a recovery curriculum needs to address the trauma that young people have been through this year. The burden that they have carried for adults is extraordinary. Um, And, you know, we've sent them back to school um, and we're testing them and we're asking them to wear masks again to protect adults. It's it's we're putting adults first when we should be putting children first. School needs to be normal as possible. It needs to be consistent. It needs to be regular. We need to have the usual boundaries and rules. They need to know what to expect. Um, It needs to be normal and certain.
0: The prime minister just promised five hundred million for mental health support. Do you think there are signs of a children's mental health crisis? And how best would it be? You know how how would that money best be spent?
3: We, we came into this in bad shape. So, you know, mental health in adolescence was a problem even before we came into the pandemic. It was on the rise, self-harm was on the rise and so on. So we came in in, in, a, in bad shape with, with, the, with the situation that face-to-face services are not able to cope with the demand. And that is, you know, even worse today. So 500 mil, million is obviously very welcome, Uh, It's not the billions that are being spent on testing uh, on on a daily basis. And again, you know, the kind of parity of esteem between mental and physical health is, I suppose, really laid bare here. Um, And I think we are going to have to think really carefully about how we spend that money. And for me, um, you know, probably going to need some grassroots organisations to take up the slack and to embed Um, well-being and resilience and mental health within our communities because I don't think we can rely on the government to do that. I think there's going to have to be a grassroots approach Um, and really important to have the support in schools because children spend a lot of time in their school.
0: I find, this is quite a personal thing really, I I find as, as a mother during this period, I mean everyone's had their strains and their difficulties but I'm just worried, sick about my children, Ellen. I mean there 's hardly an hour of the day when i'm not worrying about how they are what the, what their state is what their prospects are and on planet normal we've you know we've heard from students but we've also heard from so many parents who are worried sick about about their kids I mean can you share with listeners a a story that's really concerned you that that that's come to your attention
3: I think one that really stuck with me was the parent of uh I think, seven-year-old child saying that um, they they wanted to go to bed and not wake up because what was the point in waking up? Um, and and I feel the same. Um, I am you know, a scientist, but I am also a mum. And I think that all we can do as parents is to obviously hold our children as close as we can, but listen to them. And I think, we really do have to listen to them and and try to put them first as much as we can because the government's not going to do that.
0: Ellen, you signed the Great Barrington Declaration. We've talked about that before on on Planet Normal, which argued that lockdown would cause more harm than good. You're also a a member of HEART, the Health Advisory and Recovery Team, which is an alternative group of scientists and medics asking for a more nuanced approach to the pandemic. I mean, there has been this real argy-bargy an unpleasantness, hasn't there, between scientists, with some people making the kind of argument you're making, having ad feminine and ad hominem attacks. Has it has it surprised you that, that that science has become this? You know, rather than finding what you know, science isn't one truth, is it? Science is edging forward and collecting all the evidence that you can. I mean, ha, have you been bruised by it?
3: Yeah, I I, I think um, many people who have um, taken um, a wider view than the dominant narrative have, have been very bruised. And I have colleagues who have, they've been harassed. They've, they've been attacked. Yeah. And their families, it's been, you know, to, to to a, re- with a really negative impact on their mental health, actually. Um, and it, I suppose, yeah, I think the, the vitriol uh, that was thrown at the great Barrington declaration was, was, was quite, Shocking, Not least because it, it, it's really the principles of, you know, pandemic planning <laughs> that was written into the guidance before 2020 happened. Um, and so I think that's what many of us who signed it with the deepest compassion to protect as many people as possible and have lockdowns protected vulnerable people. I would like to see proof of that. I have yet to see the proof.
0: As we go forward, I mean, there's there's a lot of talk coming out of government about academic catch-up. How would you balance Would you balance academic catch-up with emotional catch-up? I mean, I, I, I don't know your terminology, but do you see what I mean? It's
3: probably going to come as no surprise to you that I think that the social and emotional aspects need to come first. And if we don't have that mental health and well-being, the learning is just not going to take place. So I focus on you know, sporting activities, um, the arts, um, having fun, just having fun and being together and socialising is, is you know, going to be a much more beneficial um, approach. And again, lots of um, academics working in this sphere have argued for this. Um, across the age range from, you know, little primary school children up up to teenagers. Um, And this kind of trauma informed recovery approach is is going to be vital. Unfortunately, I think, you know, the testing has already started in earnest and I feel quite um, disappointed by that, but maybe not, not not surprised. So again, you know, for me, it's got to be a summer of fun for young people. They've got to get out there and have a have a good time, and you know that will help them to feel in a good place to achieve academically. No one's going to perform well if you're, you know, really struggling with your mental health. It's very difficult.
0: In the years ahead, Ellen, there's obviously going to be a huge amount of debate about all the measures that were taken to deal with COVID. How do you think we will look back as a society on, on the way that children were treated?
3: I think if we don't hang our heads in shame, we, we've lost it as a society. I think we should hang our heads in shame now that we haven't put children first. We're still not putting children first. We, I think we're going to be pretty ashamed, is my, is my overall feeling, about what we've done and how we've gone about tackling what's happened.
2: Alison, you know what? I found that interview really actually very moving. <laughs> a woman of extreme expertise and scientific competence, yes, but a mum. And that really shone through in your discussion with her.
0: Yes, I think that that's something I have found lacking in some of the scientists presiding on the national stage. And I think what Ellen has a tremendous amount of is compassion and insight As a mother, I thought the fact that she thought people should be ashamed of the way that children have been treated during this period was very, very strong. And I should say, Liam, I know this doesn't shock us anymore, but Ellen has received a lot of abuse, even from scientific colleagues, for the stand that she's taken. And I think they should be ashamed because I think she's been a a marvellous, warm compassionate and highly knowledgeable voice. And I think her area of expertise, which is young people's mental health, will only go on being more and more important as we come out of lockdown and reveal all all the consequences of what it's done to young people. One of our favourite parts of the podcast, listener emails, a selection of the fantastic, insightful, often very funny, sometimes heartbreaking messages you send each week to Liam and me at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love hearing from you. We had a lot of response, Liam, to your terrific interview with Hugh Osmond last week.
2: So he's the guy that set up Punch Taverns, Uh, Help set up Pizza Express. He really knows the hospitality sector.
0: So Louisa says, All hail Hugh Osmond, visiting Planet Normal. He hit several nails very firmly on the head. Lack of planning, political panic, dodgy data and poor ventilation. My family call this the great pandemonium. And we have remained sane by helping each other. Fortunately, we live in the countryside, so we have chosen which of the appalling regulations are actually relevant without frightened curtain twitchers grassing us up. We're all healthy, have ignored the news, had the odd cough or cold, plus never tested positive for that cold virus as we've had it. People are breaking out all around us and showing two firm British fingers to the distant bureaucrats. We realise many are still frightened and we respect that, but we urgently need to get out of what has long become house arrest, not quarantine.
2: This is from Jean-Marc. I'm a huge Planet Normal fan and look forward to your weekly dose of information and sensible comment. Last week, Liam mentioned again how much the media's let us down, kowtowing to the government's agenda without question, baying only for more, faster and harder lockdown and restrictions. This was brought into focus earlier this month, when an anti-lockdown march in London was barely reported. I went along and I'd say there were at least 20,000 others there, voicing our frustration and anger at the government's handling of the situation and the continuous fear-mongering that's frightened so many of us into unquestioning compliance. The march filled the whole of Oxford Street as it moved from Hyde Park in central London and was made up of a peaceful and good-natured cross-section of British society in terms of age, background, class and ethnicity. There were a few anti-vaxxers and other fringe elements, but very much the minority – most of us which is normal people who've had enough, but despite the thousands who attended, media reports were only of a few hundred and focused on the unrepresentative diehards. It was a pleasure to be there with like-minded people. There are many of us and we are in no way mad or bad. Best wishes, Jean-Marc.
0: Great. And this is from Damien, not his real name. On last week's podcast, you asked for examples of what we were looking forward to post-lockdown lockdown Odd though it may seem, what I'm most looking forward to is doing a day's paid work. More would be nice, of course. <laughs> I know it's great, is More would be nice, of course, but that first day will be once again to experience the feeling of being valued, of being validated. I work as an independent consultant, and while my industry hasn't been shut down, volume of business has fallen in my sector. Other colleagues are in the same boat, and it helps to stay in touch, but camaraderie can't pay the bills. To be fair i 'm in a far better position than many others who've suffered from economic lockdown, but it still drives me crazy when I hear people say how much money they've saved saved during lockdown. Of course, i'm also looking forward to returning to meals out, pubs, gigs, etc, but a day's paid work is what i 'm dreaming of. Keep it keep it up, Planet normal hits the spot every week. Well, Damien, I really hope you can get back to work soon
2: good man and all power to your elbow this is from emma telling us the best and worst of her lockdown milo's definitely been going through a breakup in december she says breakups are hard to deal with under any circumstances but just days before christmas new year and ahead of another national lockdown was pretty soul destroying even worse it was my mum's 60th on christmas day instead of getting merry celebrating on board a cruise ship that we'd spent all years saving and planning for we were at home watching Only Fools and Horses <laughs> while I cried oh. into my Terry's chocolate orange. <laughs> I now face life as a singleton in my mid-twenties and with Faith's masks and social distancing in place for the foreseeable, my options for meeting someone consist mainly of online dating profiles which range from protein shake guzzling, torso-flaunting gym addicts to Corbyn Easter liberals. No thanks. One of the glimmers of hope I've been holding on to is April the 12th when we'll get some of our freedoms back. But the main thing that's got me through lockdown, the person who's provided my best moments, has been my mum. My mum's my rock, my best friend. She's probably stopped me going completely insane. We were very close before lockdown, but our scenic walks, gardening antics, banana bread baking, Netflix binging, mojito drinking and long chats have not only made the whole thing bearable, but actually given me some pretty good times amongst all the bad ones of lockdown. So a big thanks to my mum, and also of course to Planet Normal for help getting me through, and a big up to mums everywhere, including my mum mm. and your mum, Alison, and
0: my mum, and I'm a mum as well, Liam. So well done to me. <laughs> this next one is you've got to brace yourself a bit for this. This is um this is a very very painful uh, email from a listener. We're going to call her Valerie. But uh, Valerie wrote to us, and following the tragic story of the murder of Sarah Everard and and the increased talk about sexual harassment and sexual assault, Valerie, who's older, wanted to share her experience because she felt it might be useful for the younger generation of women. So I'm 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 going to read it, Liam, and it is just a warning to listeners. It it is very upsetting, but I hope it's worthwhile. Valerie says. I'm sharing my experiences of sexual harassment and assault with you on Planet Normal in the hopes that somehow it will do some good, starting with the worst thing that happened. Around 1983 to 1984, I visited my GP surgery and saw the senior doctor, not my usual GP, with a complaint of pain in one of my breasts. I had to take my three-year-old daughter with me. The doctor told me to strip to the waist and place my hands behind my back. He then started to slap my breasts, muttering that this was the best way to observe any changes. I was embarrassed, especially as my little daughter could see what he was doing. She was standing behind him and looking puzzled. I tried to reassure her that everything was all right, but I didn't know what else to do. I was so shocked. I've never spoken to her about this since, although she's now 40 years old. I didn't know whether she would remember or understand, and I didn't want to remind her of it if she'd forgotten. However, some months later, I was called for a routine smear test. Arriving at the surgery, I was anxious when it was the same senior doctor, but this time there was a nurse to chaperone me, thank goodness. The doctor performed the test and then the nurse took away the dish and then he said, You can get dressed now. As soon as the nurse left the room, though, the doctor said, Don't get off the couch, I'll test for fibroids. With that, as far as I'm concerned, he raped me manually. I had had four children and I knew plenty about internal examinations. This was not what he was doing. He hurt me and then left me shaking with horror and disbelief. The nurse came back and she looked at me and said, are you all right? I said, yes. I was in a state of shock and I could hardly speak. Returning home, I showered and cried. When my husband came home, I told him he was concerned, but I said there was nothing I could do. No one would believe me. They'd just say it was a medical examination, full stop. I felt dirty. The next day, I went to a WI meeting, chatting to some of the women. One of them happened to say that she thought Dr. X was a marvellous man. I did not say a word, but that was when I knew no one would believe me. Over the years, I never mentioned the incident again. The nurse who'd been on duty was my midwife when I had my fifth child. I never said anything to her about what had happened. She was a lovely person, but I just couldn't bring myself to say anything. In time, that senior doctor died. 14 years ago, my husband died suddenly at the age of 60. There were no witnesses left to the awful thing that happened. When some years ago, the hashtag Me Too came to the fore, I felt I needed to tell someone. My youngest daughter and husband were living with me at the time, so I told my daughter everything. I had to name the doctor because she was alarmed that it might be one of the current GPs in our practice. I never became part of the Me Too movement, but now this dreadful murder of Sarah Everard has brought to attention the dangers women live with, even at times when they should be completely safe. The thing about what happened to me is that I wasn't even walking home in the dark. I was in a surgery, lying on a couch, naked from the waist down. Women are vulnerable in many different places. What happened to Sarah was the worst of all. After I told my daughter, I also told my college friend who has a law degree, she said to forget it. She looked up the name of the doctor online. There was nothing said about him other than that he had been a doctor at our surgery. And so my daughter urged me to write to you at Planet Normal in the hope that my experiences of sexual harassment may help somehow with a discussion that must be had if we are to solve these dreadful problems. To finish, can I say that I was extremely happily married for 39 years? I don't hate men. I'm a mother of daughters and sons. Jokes, fun and banter have always been part of our family life. I've known of two men who were accused of sexual attacks only for the girls involved to say they made it up. Those men and their families were left ruined by the false accusations. I've even written to my MP about men who've been falsely accused of things. All this proves how difficult it is in these situations to read the truth. I do not know what can be done. There have always been wicked people. Perhaps we could start with teaching good manners and respect for everyone. But how many generations will that take? Well, Liam, I just want to say to Valerie, it's not her real name, but we really appreciate your your honesty. And I should say that Valerie's now in her 70s. And it's taken a lot of courage to write that. And I do think it helps. I do really feel as as a woman who's younger and I know for my daughters, the sake of my daughters, that women sharing these experiences is, is extremely, extremely valuable.
2: What an incredibly important email to end there, Alison. And well done, as you say to Valerie, for writing that down. I'm sure that's helpful to her and to many others. So that's it for another week from Planet Normal, our sanctuary of sweet reason our flying refuge of reasoned views. Alison and I will be responding as normal to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning, the day this podcast is released between 11am and 12 noon. We'll put the link to that article in the show notes to this episode.
0: I want to pay brief tribute to co-pilot Halligan, who's struggling with a very bad cold and infection this week. That's what comes of with- Sitting outside in the park drinking all those tinnies (laughs) to celebrate Happy Monday.
2: Here's a bottle of cider.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do please leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps others to find us helping the Planet Normal family to grow.
2: And before we go, Alison, email of the week. Who's going to win one of those limited edition, rare-as-hen's-teeth Planet Normal mugs? It's your call.
0: Oh, crikey. I think I think if we appeal to editor Theodora, we might have two mugs this week. And I think that Emma, who wrote that lovely email to you about being a singleton during lockdown, and one, of course, to Valerie for her terrific email sharing her experiences from long ago.
2: So as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, and Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Theodora Leludis. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. And until next week, it's goodbye from me.
0: And it's goodbye from him.